With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when, or why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. We usually try to avoid the quote-unquote term decadism when discussing fashion history, but... Edward VII's very short-lived rule as the king of the United Kingdom is perfectly encapsulated in the first decade of the 1900s. He ruled from 1901 until his death in 1910. And while a lot of us might be familiar with the man who lent his name to the so-called Edwardian era, perhaps less of us are familiar with the legacy of his wife, Queen Alexandra. And I am the first to admit, April, that until very recently, I knew very little about her next to nothing, actually. Same here. Um, aside from her penchant for tailor maids, I wasn't really so much aware of the role that she played, Queen Alexandra, as I was of her husband. And he did not exactly have the best reputation, you might say. <laughs> no, he did not. I thought it was really funny in my research. There's actually a category on Wikipedia entitled Mistresses of Edward VII. So he had quite the scandalous love life, to say the least. You know, pretty much just like every other European king in history, apparently. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but if this bothered Alexandra at all, she never really showed it. She remained beautiful, albeit stoic figure, by his side through 40-plus years of marriage, first as a princess and later as a queen. And at least in public, cash, she never really projected any, um, you know, displeasure. She always remained the height of sophistication and elegance when she was in public. Mm -hmm. But like many public figures whose images are very carefully crafted and maintained, there is much, much more to this fashionable, impeccably dressed queen than meets the eye. And today we delve behind the seams of Alexandra's wardrobe with one of my favorite fashion scholars, Dr. Kate Strasden, author of the recently published book, Queen Alexandra, Inside the Royal Wardrobe, I am really excited to have her here today because Kate and I have known each other for years, but we've never actually spoken on the phone. We've never met in person. And it's really the power of social media that brought us together in the first place through this shared love of fashion. And I have a fashion history blog and Instagram entitled The Art of Dress. And Kate, among her many talents, has this incredible fashion history Instagram at Kay Strasden, where she posts only the most drool-worthy of images that I have long admired. Kate, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today, all the way from England. Welcome to Dressed. Welcome. Thank you. It's so nice. I've been really excited about having a proper chat with you about um, oh, so many things. And I just want to say congratulations on your book, Queen Alexandra Inside the Royal Wardrobe, which was published last year with Bloomsbury Press. And I didn't realize that this um, this is actually the culmination of 10 years of research. And this is actually what you did your PhD on. So what yes. brought you to Alexandra? Well, I worked for a time with a an amazing dress collection here in the southwest of England at a place called Killerton House, which is a national trust property. And they have a great dress collection. And I was the assistant to the costume curator there. We were given a, a series of dresses that were made by the British kind of couture house, Redfern, John Redfern. And I didn't know anything about that firm at the time. And I found it really interesting. So I started to look into the firm of Redfern as a result of acquiring these dresses. And 
the name that kept popping up as one of his most important clients was Alexandra. And I would come across these amazing pictures of her in his tailor-mates. He was particularly well-known for his tailoring. And she just looked always so amazing. And yet I couldn't find anything about her as a... uh, There were lots of biographies, but nothing about how she actually clothed herself. And it just grew into more and more of a, I don't want to use the word possession, but you know, that kind of, um, (laughs) just every, she seemed to crop up. I would find, and it it seemed like this, um, I was, that I was bound to be drawn to it. Absolutely. And you were really on the ground doing like new, brand new research into this subject too, because no one had ever really taken the time to examine her clothing, her surviving clothing as, as a, as a whole, correct? No, that's, what's always that's what was most strange about her which was that to people in the UK they had a sense of who she was that she was the wife of this uh complicated husband that she was Danish that she had a she was wore dog collars that was something that people often said to me but actually although she'd been enormously popular in her day there was very little and the biographies themselves detailed though they were They mentioned dress as being an important part of her life, but no one ever really seriously tackled that side of her Mm -hmm. very important public appearance. And I love that about your book because you really use the clothing as this incredibly important way to paint this portrait of this woman. And so let's start at the beginning because before she was Queen Alexandra or even the Princess of Wales, Alexandra was born Princess Alexandra Caroline Marie Charlotte Louise Julia of Denmark in 1844. And can you tell us a little bit more about the young Alexandra? And I also personally would like to know why the names of European royalty are so incredibly long. Oh, I know. I was thinking that just yesterday. I thought maybe they were going to make Meghan say the whole of um, Harry's, all of his names and yeah. remember the order. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, I think... The the name's always interesting because it's so much about patronage and not offending extended members of the family. So there's always that to be taken into account. Um, She she had a very, compared to the British monarchy, she had a very relaxed childhood. She Mm -hmm. was part of a minor wing of the Danish royal family. Uh When she was a child, her father was not directly in line to come to the Danish throne. So she grew up very much out of the spotlight. She, uh, her, her father was a soldier and lived on, relatively speaking, uh, low wage, uh, not low wages, but, you know, uh, he wasn't hugely wealthy. And mm-hmm. so Alexandra and her sisters grew up, for example, learning how to make their own clothes. They, they learned how to use a sewing machine. They would make their own dresses, bonnets, jackets. She talked about uh, she used to enjoy making jackets because they were easy to wear with lots of different things. They had a very happy childhood, I think. It was quite a close-knit family. They weren't having to worry necessarily about royal protocol a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And so it was a, a fairly relaxed happy-go-lucky kind of atmosphere. So that's obviously going to change a lot when she marries into the British royal family, which has a history of a lot of protocol. And um, she really didn't have any say in who she's getting married to, right? So Queen Victoria and 
her father um, decided on this on this marriage? Yeah, I mean, in that sense, I suppose you could call it an arranged marriage also, mm-hmm. almost. Uh, Albert had made a, a short list of a number of European princesses, some German, uh, Alexandra was in the mix. When he died... After a period of time, Queen Victoria returned to this sort of list of ideal brides for Edward. And Alexandra was felt to be the steadiest, if you like. And at this point, Edward had already really alarmed his parents by what they saw as his waywardness. And they felt that Alexandra was possibly the had the potential to have the most steadying influence on him. And they were very fearful of his behaviour. So after Albert's death, Victoria was determined to sort of follow his wishes in all things. And certainly Alexandra had been his favoured choice. So, yes, it was a, it was essentially an arranged marriage, although I think quite quickly Alexandra was bowled over by romantic notions and was determined that this was going to be a love match. So you reveal that Alexandra's clothing Throughout your book, you reveal that the clothing has a multitude of stories to tell about this woman who wore them. And you really just reveal that a person just needs to know where to look and how to interpret it. And I can I can think of no better place to start than with her wedding dress, which does survive and which you examine in person. And so Alexandra and Edward, after a fairly short engagement, correct, were married on March 10th, 1863. So can you talk about her her wedding dress? Yeah, her wedding dress is beautiful. It's on display at the moment, actually, at the Fashion Museum in Bath, uh, in the in the south of England. It was not without controversy. Alexandra had hoped to wear a dress of European lace because I think she had a sense of bringing her own cultural identity to the wedding day. But Victoria was very, very clear that this was going to be an all-British affair, that the dress itself was going to be... Uh, made in England, that the lace was going to be British, that the all of the accessories, it was going to be a, a show of British textile wares. And so that was, there was no kind of option on that, really. Can you talk about what you discovered when examining in the dress? Because you actually revealed what you say might have been Alexandra's first small act of subversion against the, against the Queen of England. <laughs> Yes, it was really interesting. And it was an amazing example of how looking at the garment itself actually really belies the uh, the stories that get told about it afterwards. It's a bit like Chinese whispers. So all of the press talked about the fact that this was a Honiton lace dress. Honiton is a small town in East Devon, not far from where I am now, in fact. Uh, but when I actually studied the dress itself and looked inside it and underneath it and all of the, you know, looking at it in quite a forensic way, I found that it was, it actually had a panel of Brussels lace inside. So Brussels lace is the finest of the European bobbin laces. And that was the dress that she had been given by King Leopold of the Belgians that she had hoped to wear. So there's this piece of Brussels lace tacked inside the skirt. It doesn't really serve a useful purpose. It's not acting as a brush braid or as a as a trimming. It was in a fairly unusual place. And although I don't have any evidence to substantiate this at all, my theory was that she, as a young 19-year-old girl from Europe, uh, 
had included this little piece of Europe within her garment, out of sight, so it wasn't causing any obvious controversy, but it possibly was just the the tiniest act of subversion. Right. And she did, am I right that all of her undergarments were made in Copenhagen in her home country? Yeah. So the trousseau itself was made up in Denmark uh, by a company called Leverstone. And they displayed the trousseau in their their shop in Copenhagen before it was packaged up and sent over uh, prior to the wedding. So the trousseau elements, those, the linen, the, all of the things like her handkerchiefs, her chemise, uh, all of those undergarments, they were, they were all made in in the finest linen and and hand stitched and embroidered in Copenhagen. So, I think we should take a brief digression here because you kind of hinted at it earlier, but um, this episode's probably going to air in July. But in real time, the royal wedding happened just yesterday. We're all very yes. excited about this. Yeah. And I actually, this entire time, this wedding um, has been being planned and we're learning more about Megan. I've been, and I've been reading about Alexandra. I've been making a lot of comparisons between the two because they were both foreign brides marrying into the British royal family. So there's a lot of expectations mm. and standards that they both have to uphold. And of course, it's the 21st century and, and there's a little more, you know, it's a little more relaxed for Megan, but um, still, she she had a lot to consider when picking her wedding dress. Um, and now we know that it was um, a actually Parisian couture, Givenchy, but um, now headed by Claire Waite Keller, um, the first woman and British woman to helm the, biz- um, the business. So I just want to talk about Megan's dress for a little bit and see and get your opinions on it and what you thought about it, especially in relation to the history of royal wedding dresses. I think I think it was very beautiful. Uh, I think the simplicity was not surprising. Uh, actually, my friends and I talked about it before, and I and we'd said we thought that possibly it would have that straight across neckline, mm-hmm. the that kind of bateau neckline. Uh, the fact that there wasn't any embellishment on it was a, a little surprising, but yeah, it was surprising. entirely in keeping mm-hmm. with, I guess, with that um, heritage Givenchy style that I think was the intention. Uh, it was interesting that the lace, both on Kate's dress, on the Duchess of Cambridge's wedding dress in 2011, and now on on Meghan's, the lace remains important. So that veil, mm-hmm. almost, the dress almost, I think, was the canvas, even though it's, it's the white, but it was almost the canvas for the symbolism that was built into the veil. And the lace was obviously a feature of Kate's dress as well. And I think it's very interesting that lace has become for many of the British wedding royal wedding dresses, part of the the language of those dresses now is where you can build in those motifs and the symbolisms. Yeah, and so Kate, dress listeners, Kate's talking about this 16 and a half foot silk tool veil that um, Megan wore and hand embroidered on the entire thing is um, Flora representing the 53 countries of the Commonwealth. Um, So while maybe a lot of the images that we saw yesterday didn't quite reveal these details. Um, they are there and they are um, a symbol of British hand craftsmanship that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's really a tradition yes. 
you know, because she's a symbol, right? She's walking into the British family and she's wanting to pay homage to British tradition. And that's a beautiful way to do that. Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's not, of course, the veil isn't, her veil wasn't actually made of lace. It's hand embroidered too. Mm-hmm. But the the effect is is the same. And the idea that you're building these motifs, of course, Alexandra's wedding dress had all of these motifs, the cornucopia, it had the rose and the shamrocks, all of these sort of na- symbols of, of national identity uh, woven in the case of the lace with the bobbins uh, are taken into the actual symbolism of the garment itself. Can you talk a little bit about, because Harry and William both wore the frock coat uniforms of the Blues and Royals Regiment, mm. which are, I understand, bespoke and they're cut and sewn by hand. Um, what is the tradition of, because Prince um, Edward also wore a uniform when he married Alexandra. What is the tradition of wearing the uniform to the wedding in the British family? Well, it's very interesting because I noted that somebody, I I hadn't realized this about Harry, but he could have chosen, you know, because male members of the royal family are usually head up some kind of regiment. They, They have the they're permitted to wear all sorts of different uniforms. So, for example, Edward dressed as a general of the British Army, uh, despite the fact he had never served as a, as a soldier himself. But um, Harry could have chosen to wear a uniform that was much higher in rank, and he chose to wear the uniform of his actual, the, the part of the army that he had served with. And so it was a, an interesting choice because he chose actually to almost democratise himself in a way by not going up into the upper echelons in terms of rank, I thought was a really interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've digressed far enough, but that was really fun. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So back to Alexandra and Edward's wedding day, 1863. In many ways, Queen Victoria and Alexandra could not have been more different. Um, You see images of the wedding um, past the wedding a couple days, um, you know, months. um, And these photographs are of Queen Victoria and Princess Alexandra and Prince Edward. And she's wearing black. And that's because she is in mourning for her husband. You mentioned that he died in 1861, just a few Mm -hmm. years prior. And she would really wear mourning attire. I mean, she would wear mourning attire for the rest of her life. And so this young woman is really breathing fresh air into um, the court. She's young, she's beautiful, she's fashionable, and she became immensely popular. Can you talk a little bit about the role that photography played in shaping her public image? Because this is a relatively new phenomenon at this time, but there are thousands of images of her, especially in this first year of her marriage. Yeah, that she she was a very, I think this part of her own image making. She recognized from a very early point in her marriage and her new royal career in Britain that public popularity and public image was going to be very important. And so she was a keen photographer herself and was was interested in playing with all sorts of image making. But she harnessed that. She she did arrange, for example, after one of the one of her pregnancies resulted in her suffering an illness that uh, left her uh, quite critically ill for a while, and there was a huge amount of public concern for her health. And she arranged for a series of photographs to be taken. One that was showing her recuperating, and so it was a very informal photograph of her with her hair down, and 
showing the public that she was actually recovering, but it was it was the kind of image that you didn't see of royalty, where their, their hair is down, she's wearing a kind of light dressing gown, she's sitting in a chair. Uh, it's sold in its millions. There then was a, a series of photographs taken of her once she'd fully recovered with her little girl on her back. I love that image. It's beautiful. It's an incredibly candid image and not at all the image of Victorian motherhood that was widely accepted, certainly in the ar- more aristocratic circles of a, that, that had a perception of a slightly more distant uh, matriarchal figure. So here you have somebody at the very top of the social hierarchy being the fond and adoring mother. And she was, she, you know, she managed those images. She arranged for them to be, to, to be taken. And she, they sold, I think that one in particular became the most widely sold image ever to that point. And so you're talking about carte to visites, right? Which are yes. these kind of almost postcards that were printed at this time. They were, and they and were affordable. Mm-hmm. They, they, were, they were relatively cheap. So people could buy a little piece of the royal family. They were becoming more and more familiar with real, as in not painted portraits, real images of the, the people that they were reading so much about in the newspapers. And suddenly they could have this little piece of what they actually looked like. Fun fact, dress listeners, Kate and I recently teamed up on Instagram to track the evolution of fashion history from the years 1860 to the 1920s, just using images of Alexandra. That is how many images of her exist out there. So please check that out at hashtag Queen Alexandra Fashion Timeline to see that progression. Um, And after a short word from our sponsors, we will discuss just how Alexandra harnessed the power of dress in shaping and protecting her public image. So obviously photography was one way that Alexandra could control her image. And we have to remember, of course, this is very much the pre-paparazzi era and that um, technology was not advanced enough for people to, you know, hide in bushes to snap her photo at an offhanded moment. Um, But another way that Alexandra controlled her image was with the clothing she wore. And you discuss in your book the way in which she used this clothing, almost like an armor, And people have similarly used that language in relation to things like the corset, this idea that clothing can be a woman's armor. And for instance, Alexandra's signature was these severely tailored suits that you talked about um, being Redfern's specialty earlier. And they're actually quite simple, elegant, and they're impeccably fit to reveal this tiny corseted waist. And she also always covered her neck with high-necked blouses or jewelry, And I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit more to her calculated use of dress. Yeah, I think the tailoring is particularly interesting because at this point, that kind of garment was really restricted for women within the sporting sphere. It was the kind of thing you wore to play tennis in maybe or to go yachting or to Mm -hmm. watch yachting, uh, certainly for riding. So it, it existed in a very particular kind of space, but it wasn't the kind of garment that women wore just as an everyday Uh, piece of day wear. Alexandra started wearing it, I think, because she she enjoyed the paired back style. She knew it suited her figure. She remained very slender for the entirety of her life. Mm -hmm. And so she recognized that actually that suited her. She quite liked the lack of fuss that went with that. I sometimes wonder as well whether it was another way of her. Uh, Queen, uh, Queen Victoria often criticized Alexandra for being too slim. And so I think 
Yeah, you know, again, I wonder whether it was just a little way of her emphasising that slimness in the face of criticism. Yeah. The other interesting point, I think, is that for as long as Alexandra's silhouette remained stable and static, her husband's was growing year on year. Yeah. And interestingly, the tailor, the tailoring records of Henry Poole and Co, uh, were the oldest tailor really on Savile Row, they've got an entire archive of all of their past clients. And Alexandra and Edward both are there. And Alexandra's page is simple in its measurements in that they don't change. There's just one line of measurements and they do not alter. Wow. Whereas Edwards extends to many lines and crossings <laughs> out and re, you know, writing in the new measurement and then, you know, a certain amount of time afterwards, crossing it out again and writing in the next measurement because he increasingly grew in girth. He was very interested in the kind of living the uh, the, the high life, particularly in terms of food. So he his, his body shape changed. And mm -hmm. I sometimes think that she acted, you know, possibly deliberately as the kind of counter to that excess. She was a vision of control. And that was quite an interesting part of, of her tailoring legacy. And of course, it was the legacy that became very much what was a working female wardrobe mm -hmm. that women would wear tailored garments she was the first person to do it and it's a legacy that survives to this day so in many ways I think it was her most important contribution um the scar this idea of clothing as armor she had suffered from a, a very bad cold as a child that had resulted in her glands becoming infected a kind of there was some fear that it was a tubercular illness like uh, scrofula and Somebody tried to, a, a doctor attempted to relieve the infection by performing a minor operation on the glands in her neck. Oh, no. And it left a scar. There was great anxiety about ill health mm -hmm. amongst the British royal family. They were dogged by things like the, the, the haemophilia. And Queen Victoria is very keen that, that there should be no sign of weakness, as perhaps she would have called it. And so Alexandra, mindful of that, always ensured that her neck was covered. So in every portrait, in every photograph that you ever see of her, her neck is always covered. And it was a, a recognition that she was playing that public role um, and using clothes to both display things, but also to disguise things as well. So today there is still very much this practice of sartorial diplomacy among world leaders and politicians. So uh, in America, First Lady Michelle Obama was repeatedly praised for her patronage of American designers, but she was conversely criticized whenever she wore non-American designers. So I'm assuming these same expectations were in place for Alexandra. Can you talk about who was designing her clothes? Was it just British designers? No, and this was one of the most interesting things that I found, again, about using the the material culture, the surviving garments, to speak where perhaps other assumptions had been made. All of her, uh, her biographies talk about the fact that she patronised British suppliers, that she always bought British. And whether this was a line fed traditionally from palace sources and then it got taken up as uh, and just accepted as the truth. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the garments that have survived, all of her formal wear, all of her surviving court gowns, all of her ball gowns, evening dress, they are all Parisian without exception. Mm. She never bought British couture because, you know, Parisian couture was better. That was the, the bottom line, I think. 
Whereas all of her tailored garments, all of her her shirts, her tailored jackets, her gourd skirts, they were all British because she patronised the best. Tailors on Savile Row, companies like John Redfern, uh, Vernon was a company that she started to buy from in the late 19th century, Busfine. So there was a very distinct demarcation between mm-hmm. formal wear being Parisian and uh, tailor wear being British. And so how was she shopping in France? She probably was not allowed to go to these Parisian couturiers. No, it's interesting. She she did go to Paris. And I think she what happens was, and this was something that a lot of the couture houses were able to do, particularly for, you know, American clients and for, for other overseas clients. They would have a dress form made up in the, particularly for their most influential clients, with the measurements of that particular client. And then garments could be fitted to that form and sent over to the UK and minor adjustments could then be made once they'd arrived. So she didn't have to be present for fittings mm. in that way. And it was, an, it was an easy way. And I think because really she's entering that first age of celebrity, even shopping in London was something that she couldn't achieve very easily. She couldn't walk down Regent Street and pop into her favourite Uh, you know, boot makers or something. So all of her supply was conducted in a much more distant way than would have been customary for most people. Yeah. And that leads me to this next story because we, Alexandra certainly had her sartorial obligations to fulfill. However, that did not keep her from having some fun. And one of my absolute favorite stories from your book has to do with her sister, her younger sister, Dagmar, Um, And Dagmar, like Alexandra, had married into a very influential family. She is the Tsarevna of Russia, and she would become empress in 1881. But Dagmar and her husband came to visit Alexandra in 1873, and the sisters caused a sartorial sensation. And it is wonderful, but I'll let you tell the story. I know, it's one of my absolute favorites as well, because how they achieved it logistically, I think, is the most remarkable thing. So they, uh, Dagmar and her husband were coming to the UK for this visit and the sisters decided ahead of time that they would dress alike for the entirety of the state visit uh, that the Russian couple made. And not just, you know, once or twice, but during the six-week visit, they wore exactly the same clothes, day in, day out, during the day, during the evening, and it was an absolute logistical uh, nightmare, I imagine. So Dagmar is based in Moscow, largely, uh-huh. um, or uh, St. Petersburg as well, as is now, and, and the major Russian cities. Alexandra is based in London. They're wanting to source the dresses from Paris because Dagmar was a great uh, patron of Worth, of Charles Frederick Worth. And so it became... Exactly how it was achieved, I don't entirely know. There are one or two letters that I've read where they discuss this a little bit. But how they actually achieved it so that at the very point, and it was from the very point of their arrival, they had obviously decided ahead of time. So as Dagmar disembarked from the uh, ship that brought them to the UK, she came down the gangway wearing exactly the same dress as Alexandra was wearing to meet her. It was a it was obviously designed to create maximum visual impact for the for the the people that are actually there in person but also for the british press to report upon more widely i think it was a show of solidarity in part because these were sisters who were very close but separated 
by separated geographically. I think it was a way of them taking a measure of control over their appearance and the way they wanted to present themselves in a world where they perhaps didn't have a great deal of control. So Mm -hmm. it was an amazing episode and they repeated it when Alexandra returned to Uh, actually went to Russia to see her sister the following year for uh, a a family wedding. So they did the same thing again in reverse. And it was an amazing, uh, again, an amazing feat of logistical achievement to all have the same garments. I'm assuming that none of these garments survive because that would be amazing. Oh, no, they don't. I know, I would love. (laughs) Uh, And actually, what's interesting is that there is a, a weighty correspondence between Dagmar and Alexandra that I just wasn't able to access for this research because it's in Russia, it's all in written in Danish, mm-hmm. um, and both sisters have the most horrendous handwriting. So <laughs> um, it it became just a, a feat too far, actually, uh, but something that I really want to follow up on. I know. I really do love that they, because they both survived both their husbands, right? And they remained very close into their old age. And I think they both lived to be, I mean, Dagmar lived into the 1920s as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and they are testament to just um, both of them living through these amazing, I mean, obviously in the case of Dagmar Dagmar and the Russian royal family, amazingly traumatic and difficult events, Mm -hmm. uh, just Alexandra living with a great deal of loss, loss of, of children, uh, loss of her own physical uh, with uh, increasing deafness and just they they are a testament to a particular kind of royal woman I think yeah and it, it's always amazing to me to think about because they Alexandra's born in the 1840s and just to think about what happened in the 1840s all the way to the 1920s it's just mm. an incredible life to have lived it really is and to have experienced all of those things um, so now, as much as I loved learning about this um, particular sartorial escapade between her and her sisters, which is fantastic, I have to admit that's not entirely my favorite part of the book. And I know many of our listeners are Down Abbey fans, and I know I am. And one of the things that was so fantastic about that show is that it showed the lives of not just the affluent Crawley family, but their household staff. And I really, really loved how in your book, you delve into the behind the scenes aspects of Alexandra's royal wardrobe because she's presenting this perfect um, image to the world. But this was an entire department, an entire department at the royal household with over a dozen staff just dedicated to getting her dressed. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the different positions? Yeah, I think it's um, certainly for me that the why of the history and all of those people, those hidden people that we never really hear about because Mm -hmm. their story isn't recorded. That's what makes uh, as much as anything, they are the people that I found the most interesting. And they're quite difficult to, they're quite difficult to discover because Mm -hmm. they don't write necessarily their accounts down. They are, um, you kind of have to come at them by stealth in many ways when it comes to research. Uh, The, way that the royal wardrobe actually works, the office of robes, as it's called, is that you have the mistress of the robes at the top. This is a, an aristocratic position that is usually uh, for Alexandra, for example, it was the Duchess of... I've never known how to say this properly. It's Bu- Buclee, but I don't know if that's right. Somebody may well correct me on that. But it's <laughs> um, she's a duchess who oversaw the running of the office of the robes. 
So she's doing things like uh, looking at the accounts, figuring out uh, who to employ within this department. Then below her, you, you have positions like the groom of the robes and the clerk of the robes. These are, admi- again, administrative positions who are uh, looking at the finances, dealing with paying suppliers, keeping the wardrobe accounts. Some of her wardrobe accounts do actually survive in the Royal Archive in Windsor. And they are kept in these volumes. And they're a list of the suppliers that she was patronising, the sums of money that she was paying to them. Not, not actual individual orders, so it doesn't tell you uh, individual garments or, or objects that were being purchased, but just, just the sums of money. Below that administrative role, you then have the figures of the dressers. And the dressers are fascinating because in many ways they inhabit a role that is perhaps the closest to the royal body than Mm -hmm. anybody else. Because although the ladies-in-waiting, who are perhaps the public face of service, they operated on a rotor system, which meant they would serve a couple of months on, a couple of months off, and they were not with the Queen or with the Princess of Wales at all times. But the dresses were. They were there from the minute she opened her eyes in the morning to the minute she went to bed. They were the women who were talking to her about what she needed to wear that day, depending on which duties she had. Bearing in mind that women at this point are changing anywhere up to four or five times a day, particularly, of course, in the upper realms of society. So they're coordinating the what garment she's going to wear on any given day. They're also managing the uh, cleaning of garments, uh, minor repairs that might need to be undertaken, the ordering of garments, Packing when they travel, so they undertake the organisation of how things are going to be packed, which things are going to be taken, who's going to travel with the trunks. Yeah, It's a hugely important role and one that brings you into great intimacy with, with your royal mistress. It's a really interesting place to be, I think. Yeah, and aren't uh, many of them credited with preserving her wardrobe? Yes, so very often she gifted items from her wardrobe to her dresses because she was very close to them. I think they did Mm -hmm. become very often uh, perhaps as close to a friend as somebody in Alexandra's position ever had. And so she gifts many items to the dresses. Then subsequently, they remain in the family almost as a kind of souvenir and eventually, either by sale or donation, have ended up in a variety of museums around the world. So it is often the dresser that's the, the source of the surviving garment. And, and thank goodness, from my point of view, that they did. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to a little bit to the complexities of just the mere fact of getting dressed every day. Because you had this wonderful quote in your book um, that was contemporary instructions to a new dresser of Alexandra's. Um, and it's very detailed. And it talks about, you know, when she comes in the dressing room in the morning, um, these very um, explicit instructions about what to do with the water and how to give her a little chamomile tea for the face and eyes. And then, um, quote, you say, um, afterwards, ask, after she takes a bath, quote, afterwards, ask if the back would be rubbed with whiskey or anything, then fasten the stays, put the petticoat over the head, then give the drawers, then hold the box with the rings, then the crinoline and body petticoat and the tray with the brooches, then the skirt, then the body and the keys with the thinnest chain over the neck, tie the string of the body around the waist, put the brooch in and give the watch. And 
that's incredibly complex. And like you said, she she could be changing five, seven times a day, depending on what she's doing. I know. I think what I loved about that instruction as well is that it was just written in a little pencil note on an envelope. And I I think it was, you know, it was obviously scribbled down by an experienced dresser giving this, handing this information on to a new dresser who obviously kept it on her so that she could consult it and make sure that she wasn't making a mistake. So there's something very personal about the way that little instruction was written out that for somebody it was probably an absolute lifeline uh, to know what they were doing as they were undertaking their new duties. Yeah. And I I recently spent some time at the Biltmore house in Asheville, North Carolina, and was a house built by the Edith and um, George Vanderbilt, I believe is his name. Um, But it's as close to a royal palace as we will get in America. And Edith Vanderbilt has this incredible suite of rooms. And of course, it's hidden from the eye. So you have her magnificent bedroom, but to the side and in the back is a hallway and a bathroom. And then down the stairs is her dresser's room and her dresser's, um, you know, extra room where um, she would have done the mending. So it's like this this incredible world that you just don't see that's hidden, literally hidden from view. Yeah, yeah, it is. And what became, you know, you you have to factor in other spaces as well. So I realized I started to, when I was writing about the travel, for example, because of course the royal family did then and still do travel a great deal. And the royal yacht, for example, you have the, obviously you have the bedrooms of Alexandra and Edward, but then you have to have the wardrobe room and the room for the dressers. And so actually even on a space like the royal yacht, they had to factor in these additional spaces that accounted for dress. You know, it was a major part of their world and it wasn't something in um you know it wasn't that you're just traveling with one suitcase and you you no. hang them all up in the wardrobe this is this is a, a, a machine yeah it really is a smoothly oiled kind of process that required its own spaces I think you talk about on their trip to Egypt at one point um that there was a boat that followed with the laundress in it that there was a boat that just had the laundry. Yeah, yeah. So she was, it said, a French washerwoman. Yeah. And she was kind of following in this little towboat behind with, and her job was just to uh, deal with the, with the laundry that was, that was being uh, created on a daily basis by the, by the royal party on their trip. And similarly, I discovered, uh, this is very under-researched, but the existence of the royal laundry at Kew, which was established by Prince Albert in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And it was a train that took a ton of royal laundry a day up to along this little railway line to Kew on the outskirts of London from the various royal households. So not just... Queen Victoria, but but her various children and uh, out to queue to be laundered and then returned to the different royal residences. So that in itself was a, an establishment, a hugely complex establishment off site that was being administered as part of the clothing of royal bodies. Yeah. And you talk about too how monograms, of course, have a couple, a dual role and really that monograms embroidered on all of these linens and laundries are, of course, a symbol of the family, but they really are to distinguish whose laundry is who. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're marking the, uh, as it all gets collected together and taken out to the raw laundry, it's then the means by which everything is attributed to the right person again. So those monograms, were, in Alexandra's case, it was entwined uh, capital A's. They would, uh, they would, of course, then be able to find their way back to the correct owner. 
It's incredibly um, fascinating. Uh, so now we've discussed the sartorial legacy of the Princess of Wales, the behind the scenes, a machine that worked to, um, you know, make her image. But when we get back from a short sponsor break, we'll find out what happens to the Princess of Wales wardrobe when she becomes queen. Alexandra became Queen Alexandra and her husband King after the death of Queen Victoria in 1901. And at this point, Alexandra had really been the darling of the public eye for almost 40 years. So she's, I think, 56 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what this new position meant for Alexandra and how it was reflected in her clothing. And I think there's no better place to start than with her coronation gown, which, again, you examine up close and in person. And you actually say that this gown was, quote, um, a gown in which she might exhibit all her own free will, end quote, for the first time. Yeah, and I found that really interesting because as well, it's one of those that almost gives you a, a complete, you can see it in 360 degrees, not only because the garment itself survives, it's part of the um, historic royal palaces uh, in the Royal Collection Trust. So it survives intact and unaltered. It was never worn again. And so as you see it now is, is as it was in its original state, although it has tarnished, it's made completely of gold. Wow. It has a gold lame underdress, very heavy uh, underdress. And then there is an embroidered gold overdress with all of the symbols of state, of national identity, again, woven into it. Uh, it's got roses, shamrocks, thistles, embroidered on this net, gold net overdress. It has tarnished so you don't entirely get the sense of how sparkling it would have been, but it was entirely gold. So it was a really amazing statement dress. What was interesting, though, apart from the garment itself, there is a wealth of other historical materials. So, for example, I found a series of letters between Alexandra and her household and Mary Curzon. Now, Mary Curzon was the viceroy of India at this point. She was an American uh, she was an American heiress who had married George Curzon, became the Viceroy of India. And this is the highest position in the colonial, uh, under colonial rule at that point in India. Alexandra had met Mary Curzon and really liked her style, liked her approach to dress, and so commissioned her to oversee the embroidery of her overdress. But again, this was not known in England. In England, in the UK, it was widely reported that her dress was being made in Britain, whereas, in <laughs> fact, she's handed actually the, certainly for this embroidered overdress, to Mary Curzon in India, and, and she undertook that commission with some trepidation. She was very nervous about it. What was interesting, though, because there was some attribution that parts of it was ma were made in India, and it was suggested that this was because she had never visited India and that she had really wanted to go. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, but I found this amazing letter, which said top secret on the outside. And it was written by her private secretary, Charlotte Knowles. And she wrote, basically, that please do not tell anybody what you are doing and how you are making this overdress, because Her Majesty does not want the London ladies, and she wrote this in capital letters, the mm. London ladies knowing what she will be wearing. And so actually it was much less about being a tribute to a particular geographical space and much more about a kind of canny recognition that everybody would try and copy what she was 
wearing if they got a whiff of what that might be. And so she wanted to ensure uh, secrecy. And it's a very modern, I think it's, you know, very relatable, particularly in terms of contemporary uh, if we think about the wedding dress and all of this, the secrecy that goes around mm-hmm. that in a contemporary sense, she was taking the design of her coronation dress beyond the British press and the prying eyes of these London ladies, as she called them, so that she could ensure on the day that she appeared completely. It was a, a revelation to everybody that saw her. Yeah. And it's also, in a way, an assertion of her new role, right? Because she's no longer under the thumb of her mother-in-law. Yes, exactly. And her coronation robe, the actual velvet robe that they wear over the shoulders, that is a, a real statement of intent because she had it designed. So normally the consort, so she's the consort, she's not the actual regnant. Mm-hmm. Edward is the king, she is the queen consort. And consorts did not wear embellished robes. They were relatively simple. She absolutely bucked the protocol for this and demanded that her robe should be embroidered all over with crowns. Now, that is very much in the Danish tradition. When you look at Danish coronation robes, they are covered in gold crowns on the velvet background. And so suddenly she is in a position where she is allowed to express her own identity, something that had been forbidden for all of her time as Princess of Wales. Queen Victoria was very keen that she did not display a sense of Danishness. Uh, she was very much had to be absorbed into British traditions. And so here she is at the very point of becoming queen that she exhibits these elements of her Danishness within her coronation robe. And when you look at images of this, and there's many images and paintings of this day, it does not look like Alexandra has aged at all. And when Kate and I were doing the Alexandra fashion timeline on Instagram, people repeatedly remarked just how young she stayed. She never aged. Um, And people were quite surprised, Kate, when you revealed to them that Photoshop is not a recent phenomenon. Can, Can you talk about the practice of photo retouching during this period? Yeah, I think it's fascinating because this is part of her image making control. She very much is is controlling the images that are being uh, shared, the, the dissemination of her public image. It was very common practice in the 19th century for large photographic studios to employ retouchers. And these were people that worked on the glass photographic plates They would use, uh, it was a mixture of either chemical solutions and actual scalpels. So so the actual sharp tools that they would work on the glass negatives. Uh, They could shave off an inch or two uh, around the hips or at the waist. They could smooth the outlines of the face and the chin. They could remove wrinkles and smooth the face so that it does appear amazingly youthful. And certainly this is a practice that Alexandra adopted commonly throughout. When you look at images of her, she is is remarkably youthful. And this is a a practice that she gave her blessing to, to ensure that all of those images that circulated around the globe were of this ever youthful princess queen. Yeah. And you actually, on Instagram, you provided a side-by-side because there's a rare untouched image of her um, from that period. Yes. And that's that's very unusual. I think it's the only one certainly I've ever come across, which was the, the image at the coronation where she lo- looks much more age appropriate. She looks mm-hmm. like a woman in her 50s with, with, mm-hmm. the, with the wrinkles and that would go along with that uh, n- alongside the retouched image. So 
you don't see those very often. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly wouldn't have been the image that she would have uh, uh, permitted to have been uh, shared with with all of those many people that were interested in seeing her coronation portrait. So this youthfulness is just part of that really interesting phenomenon of celebrity, the, you know, the emerging culture of celebrity that I think she's sort of at the forefront of in many ways. Certainly. I mean, this is pre-Instagram era and I can, I still can't believe how many images there are of her. I mean, that was one of the most fascinating things about it when I started and what inspired the timeline because literally there is an image, I could find a photograph from her from almost every single year of her life and that's really a rare thing, I would say. It is. And the Royal Photographic Collection, which again is is part of the archival collections at Windsor Castle, when you go there and look at, I mean, I couldn't have looked at everything that they had in the collection. I just had to take a series of albums um, in the short amounts of time that I had to research. I would just have to pick, you know, a couple of years or, or a spread of years across the period of her life. I couldn't have looked at everything that they had because there are group images, there, there are single images, there are family images. It was just too too difficult um, because there are so many. And I think that was part of her amazing success at presenting this popular, you know, this popular public image of her. Yeah, and you can actually go on Royal Collection Trust. They have an online digitized archive and it is vast and you can... It's a rabbit hole that you can get lost. Oh, on. you it's really can, they're, and it's amazing. <laughs> you know, there are they just there are endless. Um, I'm sure that, and I'm still seeing new pictures. I I kind of think I've seen most images of her, and then I'll suddenly find that there's a whole a whole new series of them that I that I hadn't seen, or just or or, or single uh, a single image that I've never seen before. So they're still out there. Wasn't she an amateur photographer as well? She was. There's a lovely book by Frances Dimond, who is the who was the curator of the Royal Photographic Collection for many years, and she has written a book about Alexandra's interest in photography. She wrote. She presented this amazing book, which I think uh, Alexandra herself did. She, in order to raise money, it, it was a charity publication. She created something called Queen Alexandra's Photographic Book, and it was designed to look like a family photo album. So it was photos that she'd taken that were then turned into little cardboard cutouts that were pasted onto the onto the pages. So it was it was meant to look like you were, you know, you were having a little way into the royal family's intimate family album. It was sold by a daily newspaper and raised money for a children's charity. And again, a very canny, you know, she used image. She was she was sharing these images because she knew that there was an appetite for this much more candid look at royalty that was really a rejection of the kind of royalty that Victoria had had promoted for so long. Uh, for the first time, she was called the people's princess. That was she was kind of dubbed that as being somebody that many of the general population felt a connection to. They felt that she was accessible in some way. And I'm sure that's mm -hmm. a result of that much more informal childhood that she didn't feel that she had to be. I mean, I think she could be incredibly imperious as well. And there are records of her, you know, behaving in a, <laughs> in a way that was fairly, you know, indomitable. But at the same time, I think there was a ease and a kind of familiarity. She was very friendly, for example, with John Merrick, the elephant man, uh, 
as he was called, and they became great friends and she would go and visit him in hospital. And there are records of nurses saying that they would hear something in the kitchen in the hospital and they would they would look and it was Alexandra making them both a cup of tea. So she did have this much more sort of uh, relatable, hands-on kind of approach to royalty that was very new at that time. Mm-hmm. And of course, she continued to do um, a lot of philanthropic work after her uh, husband died in 1910, um, which effectively ended the golden so-called Edwardian era. Um, but Alexandra herself lived for another 15 years. She didn't die until the 1920s. And you say that even in these last years of her life, the sparkling jackets, satin skirts, and embellished felled hats of her old age were nothing if not armor. She protected herself from the public and attempted to shield the public gaze from her true self through a shimmering sartorial display. Can you just speak in closing to the last years of her life and why you think that her sartorial legacy has largely been forgotten today? I think her last years were quite difficult in many ways. She wrote to one of her dearest friends, um, think of me as I once was, not as I am now. And I think when you have been somebody that's been so fated for youthfulness and style and elegance and beauty, I think that the loss of that is is difficult to reconcile mm-hmm. yourself with. And um, she was also profoundly deaf. She had been for many, many years, but it became increasingly difficult. And so I think she used, in many ways, the, the sort of sparkle of clothing as a kind of barrier to allow people to get too close to her in mm-hmm. her final years. I think it became something of a trial, uh, the idea of public... Uh, public occasions. And so I think in many ways, those last years of her life were quite difficult. She started to appear in public far less after Edward died and uh, just just really appeared for significant occasions like family weddings. Uh, but largely she retired to Sandringham, the royal residence in the east of England. And that's the, ha- the, the home that she felt most comfortable in. Um, her sartorial legacy really has been forgotten. And I think it's because, partly because her clothes became so widely scattered. Hmm. So whereas some royal collections make a very considered effort and have done for centuries at recording the garments of their royal families, I'm thinking particularly of the Swedish monarchy, they have a very well referenced collection of their uh, monarch's clothes going right back to the 16th century. And it's really extensive. Oh, wow. But the British monarchy didn't really start thinking about collecting garments until the early 20th century. It was thanks to Queen Mary, in fact. She started to make much more of a considered uh, approach to this kind of collecting and and started to realise that this was something that was probably important and should be should be carefully archived. So up until that point, Alexandra's clothes really hadn't been kept for posterity. They had, as we mentioned earlier, often been gifted to dressers. Sometimes they had just been, uh, occasionally they would be sold via dress agencies. And so they have become very well scattered. And Alexandra's garments, I've found about, about 130 objects to date, Oh, wow. But they are all over the world. They are, there are a lot in America, a lot in North America. So in Los Angeles, in New York, in, uh, there are, there are some in, um, Toronto, uh, Sydney, Tokyo, Oslo, 
the UK, obviously, but they ha- are incredibly well scattered. But what it means is that there's no connected kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, some collections I spoke to didn't even realise they had anything of hers until I actually asked them. So there was no... I think that's partly why her her clothed body and, and notions of dress in relation to her have become fractured because they just weren't collected in one place. And part of the challenge of this research was actually sort of repopulating that wardrobe in a, in a virtual sense of bringing these pieces back together to see what they said. Scattered as Alexandra's clothes may be around the globe, I think it is safe to say that her sartorial legacy itself is no longer fragmented nor lost to history, thanks to you, Kate. Your research has, again, brought this fascinating woman to the fore and in an entirely new and refreshing way. So thank you for sharing it with all of us today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. April, I probably could have kept chatting with Kate for another hour or maybe three. She is lovely to talk to and so knowledgeable. I know that I learned a ton and hopefully our dress listeners did too. She's actually a bit of a fashion history rock star, in my opinion. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, she's Dr. Strasden, and she got her PhD while pregnant, by the way. You know, we as women, we can do pretty much anything. Yep. She, yeah, she's also an international teacher, a published author, a respected lecturer, and she's been a curator of textiles and dress for over 20 years, quite the distinguished and respected scholar. And there's so many things you can do within our field. Yes, and indeed. Like you, I really like that she came to Alexandra from, you know, this perspective of material culture. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this in the interview, um, but this is an area of study that is often undervalued by historians. I think people often question what an inanimate object can tell us. But as Kate's very much hands-on research reveals, Alexandra's clothing has a multitude of stories to tell from all different perspectives. And not just about the woman who wore them, but the entire army of people responsible for what she wore. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the -the behind-the-scenes stories that go into the making of your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram at Dressed Podcast for images that accompany each episode. This is also our Twitter handle. On Facebook, we are at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. You can write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com and also check out additional readings for each show on our website, www.dressedpodcast.com. Thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram and everyone else at How Stuff Works who helps make Dressed possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye. We all know that recycling our plastic, aluminum, cardboard, and glass is one way to be kind to our planet. But have you ever given thought to what happens to unwanted textile products? The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency estimates that 5% of all landfill space is clothing people simply throw in the trash. The average American discards at least 70 pounds of clothes and other textiles per year. And there are lots of ways to make sure your used textiles don't end up in the landfill. Consider organizing a clothing swap with friends. You never know, one person's trash might just be another person's treasure. Too much time and effort, perhaps? Then please consider reselling your items to a secondhand shop or donate them to a charitable organization. Many communities even have dedicated locations where you can drop off your textile items to be recycled. 
the fibers of your old jeans might just come back to life as your brand new future bath mat. Think what we could create by breathing new life into the textiles that protected and cared for our bodies. So spread the love, repurpose your textiles.